Good evening. It's good to see you all on this, what is a beautiful day, right? could only be described as an absolutely gorgeous, beautiful day. But here we are this evening in God's Word, and, and that's a good night too, right? Let's open up in God's Word to the book of Job in chapter 15. In the book of Job in chapter 15, we continue what has been a series of studies in this book, and, and I've shared with you that a lot of this book is somewhat reiterative, kind of the same thing said differently, but there are really, really some gems of scripture within these discourses, within these conversations. And so we go through it quickly, but we stop where there's some things that really need meditating on. It's just something we don't want to miss. But we've gone through a first cycle of debate. To remind you, in chapter 1, Job was described by God as a righteous man, an upstanding man to Satan. And Satan basically accused God of blessing him so much that he had no choice, Job had no choice, but to be a man of integrity. And so the challenge, and God said, okay, he allowed the hedge to come down, and Job lost his belongings, his wealth, and even his children, his ten children. And then he simply trusted God. And then in chapter 2, he lost his health, and he became afflicted with an absolutely awful disease. And still he trusted God. And so his friends came to comfort him, and for seven days they were silent, and that was the best thing they could have done, to have said nothing. But after seven days, they began to challenge Job. And we've gone through a first cycle of debate where Eliphaz decided to say, essentially, this is why you're suffering. I mean, Job poured out his complaint, and then Eliphaz had something to say, and then Job responded to Eliphaz, and then Bildad had something to say, and Job cried out and, and, and had something to say about what Bildad had said. He responded to him, and then Zophar in the same, he responded, and then Job complained, and we came to the end of the cycle of debate. That was the beginning of the controversy between Job and his three friends. Now we get to the second cycle of debate, and in the second cycle of debate, it's a little shorter, but it goes through this same cycle of Eliphaz uh, rebuking Job now, and Job responding. And we'll see each of them take a turn, and they go through this, and we'll cover it in future studies. We're actually going to get through this whole book in what will ultimately be about 13 studies. And so uh, we're not going to get stuck or, or, or bogged down in, in, in verse by verse. We're going to read sections. We'll go through it. I'll make comment, and we'll move on. Uh, but let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your precious word, and we thank you that you speak to us through your word. And may this evening be no exception. May we hear from you. As we open your word, speak to us, encourage us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's start with Eliphaz. Eliphaz strongly rebukes Job for the things that he had said in response to their accusations in the first cycle. And he says this, it says in verse 1 of chapter 15, Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, that is, his replying to what has been Job's response to all of the things they said in chapters 12, 13, and 14. We now see that Eliphaz says, Would a wise man answer with empty notions, or fill his belly with the hot east wind? Would he argue with useless words, with speeches that have no value, but you, 
even undermine piety and hinder devotion to God. Your sin prompts your mouth. You adopt the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, not mine. Your own lips testify against you. I'll remind you that Job had done nothing to deserve this suffering. He was suffering according to God's will. But his friends came to the conclusion that Job had done something to deserve this. And that's the debate. It's all about suffering and meditating on why the righteous suffer. Why is there suffering in the world? And so that is really the theme of the book. God's purpose in suffering. But here he's insisting, Eliphaz is insisting that Job is wrong. He's wrong, and he discounts Job's wisdom as empty and destructive logic. He even denies Job's devotion to God and his integrity before him. Which is interesting because in chapters 1 and 2, we were told right up front that Job was completely devoted to God. Have you considered my servant Job? I'm going to go back there and read it in verse, uh, in chapter 1. It says here, God essentially said this in verse 8. Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. So that was God's assessment of Job's character, and yet his friends just couldn't see it because their belief about suffering and why mankind suffers, it just did not allow for someone who was righteous to suffer, which again is wrong, is a wrong way of thinking, as we'll see when we get to the end of this book. So now he questions Job's arrogance. I mean, he's accused him of not having integrity, of being a sinner, being proud, and now his arrogance. Verses 7 through 13. Are you the first man ever born? Were you brought forth before the hills? Do you listen in on God's counsel? Do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know and what we, that we do not know? What insights do you have that we do not have? The gray-haired and the aged are on our side. Men even older than your father. Are God's consolations not enough for you? Words spoken gently to you? Why has your heart carried you away? And why do your eyes flash so that you vent your rage against God and pour out such words from your mouth? The debate is becoming more intense, isn't it? You know, in today's world, uh, debate is a lost thing. We don't, we don't see debate anymore. Debate and logic, having a conversation, a disagreement, uh, presenting facts and exchanging ideas when you disagree, doesn't happen anymore. Today, if you disagree with someone, especially on the left, that person on the right is essentially called names or hit, perhaps, even struck with violence, because the person that is arguing their point has no room in their heart or their mind for anyone to disagree with them. Uh, that's not debate. Uh, the political debate is dead. Uh, logic is dead in our culture today, for the most part. And that cycle of debate that we're seeing here it inevitably escalates to the point where his friend Eliphaz is really being nasty to him. So it's not surprising this often happens. One of the things that's really interesting to see when there is a debate between two individuals who employ logic and don't allow their personal feelings to get in the way, it's actually quite interesting. It, it, it's encouraging to hear people disagree, state their point, go back and forth. And sometimes you listen to that type of debate and you, you actually say you agree with this person. Oh, then you hear their argument. Now you agree with them. And, and you know, you're trying to convince and sway the people listening of the truth. That's called debate. But this is already starting to become nasty, as you can see. And so here he's questioning Job's arrogance. He mocks Job as presuming himself to be wise in his own eyes. 
insisting that ancient wisdom and their respective age proves their case against him. This has now not become about comforting Job in his suffering. It's become about who is right and who is wrong. He piously declares Job to be an angry, proud sinner who is unwilling to receive wise counsel. So things have really degraded. Let's continue. Here he just flat out calls Job a self-righteous sinner in verses 14 through 16. By the way, a lot of times Christians, uh, because they know the truth, are very poor in the art of debate. Uh, They ultimately present the truth, and then when the person rejects the truth, which is fine, because, you know, you present the truth, and if they reject the truth, there's, there's nothing you can do. Jesus told us that that would happen. Then the person who's a Christian gets upset, and sometimes they even get a little nasty and might say things that are derogatory. So in in many ways, Eliphaz is more like those on the right who try to share the truth and they're rejected. They can get nasty. They can can come at, at the person they're speaking to in a nasty way. We have to be careful to present the truth and respect others when they disagree. It's okay. We are only called to present the truth. If someone says, well, that's fine for you, I disagree, we can't get upset and say, well, you're going to hell anyway. And how many Christians do this? They get so upset and they take it personally, like as if they hung on the cross for everyone's sins. So I would say it's not just the left that gets out of control. Sometimes you see it on the right. Sometimes you see conservatives, and, and, and conservatives aren't necessarily Christians, and not all Christians are conservatives, but it, when someone's on the right, they sometimes degrade to this level of d- debate as well. It's not really debate, it's, it's an insult, is what they've really degraded themselves to. Uh, so let's see in verse 14. What is man that he could be pure? One born of woman that he could be righteous. If God places no trust in his holy ones, if even the heavens are not pure in his eyes, how much less man who is vile and corrupt, who drinks up evil like water. I like that description. He drinks up evil like water. We have to drink water, but some people choose to drink up evil. And you see that all the time. Even we as God's people, sometimes we choose to drink up evil. So these are poetic descriptions of mankind. And many of the things that that Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar say are actually true. Many, not all. Many of the things are true. They're just not necessarily true about Job. So it's important to see that. Okay, well, let's continue here. After calling him a self-righteous sinner, which is what he said in those verses, he then vehemently argues his premise regarding the purpose of man's suffering. Eliphaz was a spiritualist. That is, Eliphaz believed that there was a spiritual reason for all suffering. So, if you're not suffering, it means you're a spiritual person pleasing to God. If you are suffering, it means you've done something spiritually to displease God. That's the spiritualist argument, that you've done something spiritually wrong, and now you're suffering in this life. That's what the spiritualist mindset believed. And Eliphaz, again, was a spiritualist. Now, so we've read uh, a little bit here, and uh, what we've learned is that the the argument, uh, and let's continue because actually, uh, after we see that, it goes on to say it this way. In verse 17, listen to me, he says, and I will explain to you 
Let me tell you what I have seen, what wise men have declared, hiding nothing received from their fathers, to whom alone the land was given when no alien passed among them. All his days, the wicked man suffers torment. The ruthless, through all the years, stored up for him. Terrifying sounds fill his ears. When all seems well, marauders attack him, and he despairs of escaping the darkness. He is marked for the sword. He wanders about food for vultures. He knows the day of darkness is at hand. Distress and anguish fill him with terror. They overwhelm him like a king poised to attack. Because he shakes his fist at God and vaunts himself against the Almighty, defiantly charging against him with a thick, strong shield. So the belief system of Eliphaz just divides everyone who's suffering, or actually everyone, into two categories. If you're suffering, you're displeasing God spiritually. If you're not suffering, you're pleasing God problem with that argument is a lot of people that are extremely displeasing to God who are not suffering. And there are people who love God and please God who are suffering. But the spiritualist, like Eliphaz, has no room for any exceptions to his very spiritual rule. The law of sowing and reaping is absolute, and God never shows mercy, and he always judges sin. And that's just the way he felt. So he argues his premise regarding the purpose of man's suffering, and he insists the unrighteous do indeed suffer uh, just as Job is suffering. So, you know, if the equation is unrighteousness equals suffering, Job is suffering, therefore he's unrighteous. Is that, that's, the, that's the logic he employs. And he accuses Job of resisting God and the truth of their very wise counsel. Again, their counsel was very true, if Job had sinned and if he was suffering for that sin. But he wasn't. Okay, let's uh, get to 27. Here he insisted, every unrighteous man will be judged for a sin in this life. Though his face is covered with fat and his waist bulges with flesh. That basically means he's wealthy, he eats well. In our culture today, that would be a bad thing. And at that time, you know, it was a good thing. He will inhabit ruined towns and houses where no one lives, houses crumbling to rubble. He will no longer be rich, and his wealth will not endure, nor will his possessions spread over the land. He will not escape the darkness. A flame will wither his shoots, and the breath of God's mouth will carry him away. Let him not deceive himself by trusting what is worthless, for he will get nothing in return. Before his time, he will be paid in full, and his branches will not flourish." He will be like a vine stripped of its unripe grapes, like an olive tree shedding its blossoms, for the company of the godless will be barren, and fire will consume the tents of those who love bribes. That is, those who are corrupt. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. Their womb fashions deceit. So using that language, they just give birth to sin and deceit and lies. It almost sounds like we're talking about Washington, D.C. there for a minute. When you look at that and you think to yourself, well, why aren't all those people suffering? Because that spiritual rule is not absolute. God withholds suffering through mercy for his purposes, just like he allows the righteous to suffer. And here he insisted every unrighteous man will be judged for his sins. But he describes in his diatribe here, as he goes through these verses, verse 27 through verse 35. He describes Job's loss of property and says, basically, the reason you lost your property, it's punishment for sin. 
He describes loss of, Job's loss of his family as further punishment for sin. That's what he's talking about there when he talks about his vine being stripped of its unripe grapes. And, you know, it's poetic language that essentially in that section says you lost everything, you lost your family, and you lost your health because you're a sinner. Can you imagine? You know, you really don't have to imagine because I've met legalist Christians that think this way. Many over the years. Uh, they're so quick to deal out death and judgment. They're so quick to decide for themselves why someone is going through a difficult time. Can you imagine if, as a pastor or as a church leader, everyone that called you that, that was suffering, if you responded by saying, well, just confess your sin, you must be suffering because you've done something wrong. Could you imagine? I don't think too many people would want to keep going to a church like that, right? And yet there are churches like that. Uh, and then, of course, they tell them if they leave and take their money with them, they're going to go to hell. So I guess that's why they stay. The truth is, I don't know why you may be going through a difficult time. I have no idea. It is possible you're suffering because of bad decisions. It's possible that circumstances have happened in your life that God has allowed that you may never know until you get to glory why it happened. God may be using suffering and sickness in your life to get your attention, to teach you lessons, to help you through uh, growing in him. And uh, you may be the worst sinner in the room. And <laughs> I think all of us probably feel that we are. But, you know, you may be the worst sinner in the room and you are not suffering at all. I cannot tell you why, but I can tell you this. It's a mistake and it's folly and foolishness to think you do know. And that is the argument of Eliphaz. Well, let's see how Job responds to Eliphaz. Uh, he actually takes two chapters to do this. And in the midst of this response is, again, a real gem, a real beautiful section that points to Jesus Christ. That's why you need to go through this verse by verse, even if you just read through large sections and stop and think and pause. And if you've noticed, I know in my Bible it's laid out this way. I have an NIV from 1984. I don't particularly like the new NIV. Uh, if you're going to buy a new Bible, these are very hard to find. I would recommend an ESV. But uh, there are a lot of good uh, interpretations and translations of the scriptures. But mine actually has little spaces where the thought sort of winds down. So that makes it easy to know when the thought is sort of complete. Sometimes it's just a couple of verses, and sometimes it's a whole section. But as we go through that, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read through those sections and then sort of look over it. But as we look at this, these next few verses... This is Job's response, and he's essentially going to rebuke his friend for the things that he has said. In verse 16, verses, uh, chapter 16, verses 1 through 5, Then Job replied, I have heard many things like these. Miserable comforters are you all. Will your long-winded speeches never end? Some of you probably think that when you're reading the book of Job. It's like, we could have wrapped this up in three chapters, you know, I mean... But that's the, that's the Western mind. You know, we want everything. We like, we like microwaves and, you know, we, we, we like everything to be instant. You know, if our, if our internet speed isn't like three or four hundred, you know, MIPS, then we're like, we're, oh my gosh, it's so slow. I, I remember dial-up. Remember dial-up? You know, remember all of that? And you were lucky if the connection even made it through and then if it was stable... And, you know, remember the screen? Remember this? Remember that when you were loading the screen? 
Those of us who, who grew up with that realize, wow, we really have some great things. But even now, people get like really upset when things don't move at lightning speed. Well, the Western mind doesn't appreciate this repetition, this reiteration. I'm going to suggest get a little Eastern-minded as we study this book. Allow, you know, the meditative part of the study of this book. It isn't enough just to get to the point. That, that, you then dismiss the beauty of the poetry of this book. But notice, he's, he's about had it with their long-winded speeches. He says, will your long-winded speeches never end? What ails you? that you keep on arguing. I also could speak like you. If you were in my place, I could make fine speeches against you and shake my head at you. But my mouth would encourage you. Comfort from my lips would bring you relief. Job's saying, like, where's the comfort, you know? Some, some people refer to these three friends as Job's comforters, but they're anything but comforting. So in this section, he rebukes his three friends for their insensitive and uninspired counsel. The Bible says, I believe it's in the book of Proverbs, that even a fool is wise when he keeps his mouth shut. It also says that a fool is known for his many words, his much speaking. I'm going to suggest that you start to develop the practice of listening. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, right? James tells us that. So I'm going to suggest that you get into a practice when you're conversing with someone where you listen. You listen. Maybe even wait for someone to say, so what do you think? Now, we're in Jersey, so we don't wait for that. We figure when there's a pause or the person takes a breath, that's our opportunity to dive in. You know, I've I've been out to lunch and dinner with friends, and they have the floor, so to speak, and they don't even touch their food. Because there's, you know, just holding the conversation hostage. And then you look, you haven't eaten a thing. I'm, I'm finished with my plate. Dessert's come. The check is here and you haven't touched your food. We, we don't really understand this idea in our culture today of listening. Look, I'm a Western thinker. You know, I'm, I'm from the, the Western world. You know, I'm not from the East. But, you know, as I study Eastern thought and even martial arts, I'm, I'm learning it's very important to listen. You learn when you're listening. When you're speaking, you're teaching or you're sharing, but you learn when you're listening. They did not listen. And that was the problem. And they were insensitive. One of the things you want to sort of develop is sensitivity. Some people will say, well, you know me, you know, uh, I'm just insensitive. You know, I just say it, you know, I tell it like it is. You know, I have to say something. And, you know, if that's you, just don't do that anymore. Listen and learn to be sensitive. You know, it's not too late to change, right? Well, anyway, let's continue. Verses 6 through 14. Now he's going to lament. Look at this in verses 6 through 14 of chapter 16. Yet, if I speak, my pain is not relieved. This is Job. And if I refrain, that is, if I don't speak, it does not go away. Surely, O God, you have worn me out. You have devastated my entire household. You have bound me, and it has become a witness. My gauntness rises up and testifies against me. God assails me and tears me in his anger. He gnashes his teeth at me. My opponent fastens on me his piercing eyes. Men open their mouths to jeer at me. They strike my cheek in scorn and unite together against me. God has turned me over to evil men. And thrown me into the clutches of the wicked. And all was well with me, but he shattered me. He seized me by the neck and crushed me. 
He has made me his target. His archers surround me without pity. He pierces my kidneys and spills my gall on the ground. Again and again, he bursts upon me. He rushes at me like a warrior. Now, he's poetically describing how he feels. Now, we know better. We know that all God did was allow Satan to afflict him. God did not afflict Job. God allowed Satan to afflict Job. Job doesn't have that understanding, though. He just he looks at his life and he says, well, God did this to me. And, and, and in that regard, he's wrong. <clears throat> However, it's a fine line because he allowed Satan to do it. So in a way, you could understand why Job would say God's done this to me. There are people in the world today who look at the work of Satan that God allows for his purposes and say, God, how can you say God is love? Look, look what God did to me. Now, sometimes it's their own stupid decisions. Sometimes it's the evil in the world. Sometimes it's Satan. But we always blame God. I worked for an insurance company for 20 years, and in many of the clauses, it literally said on them, I'm sure they took this stuff out now, but an act of God. And it was never something good. It was like hail and sleet and earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes, you know. So we have this concept that God just waiting to punish us, just wanting to get us. So here, what we've seen as, as we uh, got all the way to uh, verse 14, it says again and again, he bursts upon me, rushes at me like a warrior, like he's engaged in warfare with God, and God is just taking him down. Here we see that he's lamenting the physical and psychological torture that God has allowed in his life. Again, God hasn't done it, but he's allowed it. We know that from chapters 1 and 2. Listen, words spoken aloud, Job lets us know, or privately withheld, provide no comfort in his sufferings. So if he says something, it doesn't change his circumstances. If he doesn't say something, it doesn't change his circumstances. Right? Have you noticed that, that you can't change your circumstances with your words? There are some people in this world that think if you put out positive vibes, right? You just, oh, well, let's not say that. Don't say that. Let's put out positive vibes, positive energy into the universe, that that energy is going to come back to you. This is very Buddhist. This is very Hindu. This, this, this is very Eastern, actually. This idea that you put out all this positivity and all that positivity is going to come back. It's karma. It's not true. Eliphaz was a little like that. He kind of believed in that karma, if you will. He's a spiritualist. But Job's experience doesn't line up with karma, and karma isn't true. I hear people say that all the time. Well, it's karma. No, 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 no. It's either God's allowing suffering for his purposes, or it's his mercy that's keeping you from suffering. God is sovereign in all things. So, Job knows that his brutal suffering... And even the relentless scorn of his friends is allowed, even ordained by God. In that regard, it's true. You know, he still sees himself as a righteous man of integrity who is suffering without cause. Look at verses 15 through 17 of chapter 16. He says, I have sewed sackcloth over my skin and buried my brow in the dust. My face is red with weeping. Deep shadows ring my eyes, yet... My hands have been free of violence, and my prayer is pure. 
That description, I mean, what does that tell you? He's been doing nothing but weeping and crying for weeks, possibly months. And he's been in repentance and sackcloth and ashes, mourning the loss of all his family members that he lost. And, and, and yet, he says, look, having said all this, I haven't done anything wrong, and I still purely pray to God. He longs to be vindicated before he dies. I think if you could say, I mean, look, Job wasn't perfect. All right? But Job hadn't done anything to deserve this. He was blameless, though he was not perfect. No one's completely, entirely innocent. But he hadn't done anything to deserve this. That's what it means when we say he's blameless. Well, think about this with me, though. At this point, and and you could see this is sort of the pride of man. One of the things that's really hard for Job is that he knows he's a man of integrity and nobody thinks he is. You know, you take his belongings, you, you take his kids, you take his health, but don't you dare touch his integrity. A lot of us think that way. And in that regard, he's very human. Because isn't it difficult to suffer when you know you haven't done anything wrong? How would you feel if you got fired, God forbid, you got fired tomorrow and you hadn't said anything wrong or done anything wrong? And they accused you of doing something wrong and you hadn't done it. How would you feel? You'd be like, I'm cashing a check. I'm going to be able to get, you know, unemployment. No, no, you wouldn't think that. Because at the end of the day, what you're really upset about if you're a person of integrity is your reputation. You know your character and you don't like the slander. It's very, very, very difficult to take that kind of slander and be at peace. It's actually almost impossible. And that's what the suffering that Job is experiencing now, that, that's the real suffering, his integrity his reputation, his character is being called into question. And he wants to be vindicated before he dies. Okay, I want to die. He said that already. But before I die, I want everyone to know that I'm a man of integrity. Is it pride? Perhaps. But it's still true. He is a man of integrity. Well, let's read verses 18 through 21. And again, chapter uh, 16. And this is, this is a precious section. And notice how he looks to be vindicated. He says, O earth, do not cover my blood. May my cry never be laid to rest. Even now, my witness is in heaven. My advocate, or my attorney, is on high. My intercessor is my friend. And as my eyes pour out tears to God on behalf of a man, he pleads with God. As a man, he pleads for his friend. Wow. It's interesting because he's talking about an advocate. He's talking about an intercessor who is a friend in heaven pleading on his behalf to God the Father. That's very revealing stuff. I mean, that really points to Jesus, as many of these portions of Scripture do. And in saying that, it gives us some insight. They had some concept of an intercessor before God. The angel of the Lord, perhaps? Of course, they didn't know him to be Jesus, the man. But isn't it interesting? It says, on behalf of a man, he pleads with God as a man, as a man pleads for his friend. Greater love is no man than this, that he lay his life down for his friend, Jesus said, right? So we're getting a glimpse prophetically, but we're getting a glimpse into heaven, but we're also getting a glimpse into the character, the nature of God, the Son, who intercedes on our behalf. And we know this to be true from the book of Hebrews. He ever lives to make intercession 
on our behalf. Coming into this section, he has the assurance that he is upright before God. And he describes his intercessor as a friend pleading with God on man's behalf. And that is exactly what Jesus Christ does for us as the great high priest, the mediator between God and man. Amen? Of course, only a God-man could arbitrate between God and man. Only a Savior could save man from sin's penalty, which is death. Only a qualified mediator could instill the boldness to approach God. And that's what Job wants us to know, and that's how he understands God. He he identifies uh, these friends. He identifies them as less than friends, as they were unwilling to intercede on his behalf. See, he's talking about someone standing in the gap. Bridging the gap, if you will. Someone standing up for him. And by, by talking about Christ, essentially the Son of God, he's contrasting them, uh, him against his friends. Rather than doing what God the Son would do and will do for him in heaven, his friends have taken the position of Satan himself. Think about that. Be careful, brothers and sisters. When you're dealing with someone who's suffering, rather that you be accused of being like Jesus than like Satan, rather that you be described as an advocate or an intercessor who is Christ-like on the defense for your friend than to be described as witnesses for the prosecution. Right? There's a lesson in there. And there's also a beautiful picture. David Thomas said this, Tears are the best prayers. No devout expressions, no liturgical language has such influence in heaven as tears. Beautiful thought. Something to think about. Well, of course, Job is losing hope that he'll ever be vindicated before he dies. His biggest fear... I'm going to die and everybody's going to talk about me as the guy who had no integrity. Not dying. He's not afraid of death. At one point, he says, I know my Redeemer lives. (laughs) But here's the thing. How do you think Christ felt as a man to hang on a cross as a criminal accused of things he hadn't done? That's tough. That is probably a level of suffering that most of us couldn't hold up under. That's when we lose it. That's when we begin to express our anger and our rage. When our integrity is called into question. When our character is spoken against. When our reputation is on the line. Well, he's losing hope that he'll ever be vindicated. We see this in verses 22 of chapter 16 through the beginning of chapter 17. He says, only a few years will pass before I go on the journey of no return. (laughs) That's a beautiful way of saying it, isn't it? And as we get older, only a few years will pass before I go on the journey of no return. My spirit is broken. My days are cut short. The grave awaits me. Surely mockers surround me. My eyes must dwell on their hostility. That's the suffering that Job can't bear up under. Everything else he can take, but this is what he can't take. 
And he's lost hope that he'll ever be vindicated before he dies. And then he cries out to God to defend his integrity before his unwilling detractors. He just, he just, he just wants them to know the truth about his integrity. And of course, at the end of the book, that happens. Yay. But he still never finds out why he was suffering. Not really. Not really given an answer to that. But his integrity is defended by God himself. But we haven't gotten there yet. We've got a ways to go. Let's see verses uh, 3 through 9. In chapter 17, give me, O God, the pledge you demand. Who else will put up security for me? You have closed their minds to understanding. Therefore, you will not let them triumph. If a man denounces his friends for reward, the eyes of his children will fail. God has made me a byword to everyone, a man in whose face people spit. My eyes have grown dim with grief. My whole frame is but a shadow. Upright men are appalled at this. The innocent are aroused against the ungodly. Nevertheless, the righteous will hold to their ways, and those with clean hands will grow stronger. Speaking of himself. So the contrast of what they're saying about him versus what he knows to be true in his heart. Here he strongly criticizes his friends for being blind to the truth and describes his friends as ungodly and worthy of public rebuke. That's what we see there in verses 6 through 8. Upright men are appalled at this. The innocent are aroused against the ungodly. So he looks at his friends as ungodly in that regard. And then he sees himself as righteous before God, regardless of what they have to say. So the man's integrity is intact. Finally, he challenges his three friends to truly remedy his suffering. They've tried. Like, if you're going to come up with an answer, come up with the right one. Come up with one that makes sense for my circumstances. Don't offer me counsel that doesn't make any sense to me, essentially. And finish it up here in verses 10 through 16. He says, but come on, all of you, try again. I will not find a wise man among you. My days have passed, my plans are shattered, and so are the desires of my heart. These men turn night into day. In the face of darkness, they say light is near. That is like they're revealing the truth, but it's said in sarcasm. By the way, sarcasm is in the Bible. So all of us from New Jersey have hope, right? If only, if the only home I hope for is the grave, if I spread out my bed in darkness, if I say to corruption, you are my father, and to the worm, my mother, or my sister, where then is my hope? Who can see any hope for me? Will it go down to the gates of death? Will we descend together into the dust? Hope appears to have been lost at this point, clearly, by this man who's suffering. And you could understand why. Very human response. But he says to his friends, you know, can you really solve my problems? You say you can, but, oh, you turn darkness into light, but you're really turning light into darkness. You know, you claim to reveal the truth, but it's not truth that you reveal. So he sarcastically criticizes their understanding and their counsel, describing them as idealists who offer him only false hope. Because their, their suggestion is, well, just confess your sins. Everything will be fine. All of them essentially say that. So what if he did? What if he lied to himself and lied before God and said, oh, God, forgive me of my sins because I sinned and that's why I'm suffering, which we know isn't true. What if he had done that? Would anything have changed? No. No. What if Christ had done that? Now, of course, we know he wouldn't have because 
He never lied. He never sinned. But what if he said, oh, you know what? Now that I think about it, you know, not, I did sin. I shouldn't have said that, you know. I shouldn't have said I was the savior of mankind. And would he have avoided the cross? Probably not. But it doesn't matter because we know our savior would never have denied the truth of who he is. Anyway, Job has given up any hope of ever being vindicated or restored, but I'm glad to tell you, when we get to the end of the book, he will be. There's a lot we learn here, but perhaps the most important thing to take home with us is this. What he said in chapter 16, verse 19, when he said, even now, and we can say this as well, my witness is in heaven, my advocate is on high, my intercessor is my friend. As my eyes pour out tears to God on behalf of a man, he pleads with God as a man pleads for his friend. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our great high priest, that you are our intercessor, that you intercede on behalf of each of us who are sinners. And when our sin is ever present with us and we confess it before you because of what Jesus, the Son of God, did on the cross and how he rose again on the third day. Because of that, we're forgiven. And whether we suffer or not, that that doesn't change. That forgiveness is assured. We have that hope in Jesus Christ. And for that, we are incredibly grateful. Oh, Lord, help us as we continue to study through this book to see these gems, these, these truths that come out in the text. But, Lord, help us also to adopt the character of Jesus Christ when dealing with others who are suffering, with all others, those that disagree with us. Help us to be sensitive, not insensitive. Help us to be compassionate and thoughtful and truly encourage one another. And when someone disagrees with us, help us to love them into the kingdom of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.